Hey everyone, welcome to the Burnett Breakdown in Podcast Form. First time ever. I'm Hunter Burnett and my goal is to keep up with the news so that you don't have to. Today we're going to be talking about Supreme Court vaccine mandate rulings, inflation, and in international news, Russia. On Thursday, the Supreme Court released its ruling on the vaccine mandates put in place by the Biden administration. Now, there were two vaccine mandates that they addressed. The first one is the OSHA mandate, OSHA's Occupational Safety and Health Administration. OSHA implemented a new standard that required businesses with 100 or more employees to have to require their workers be vaccinated or undergo at least weekly COVID-19 testing. Any business that was found to not comply to this standard would be fined up to $13,600 per violation. In their ruling, the Supreme Court basically found that Congress did not give OSHA the power to regulate public health broadly. So, in other words, COVID-19 is a risk, broadly speaking. It is not a risk that comes from the workplace. It is a risk when, as you go throughout your life, you're at risk of getting COVID. It is not unique to the workplace. And essentially, the Supreme Court found that OSHA has only been given power from Congress to regulate hazards from that occur from the workplace. Some quotations from that ruling. Permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. It continues, although Congress has indisputably given OSHA the power to regulate occupational dangers, it has not given that agency the power to regulate public health more broadly, requiring the vaccination of 84 million Americans simply selected simply because they work for employers with more than 100 employees certainly falls in the latter category. Now, I want to make some uh, distinctions or some clear, some clarifications here. The Supreme Court did not rule that the government in general cannot mandate vaccines, but that OSHA can't without clear delegation from the from Congress do that. So in other words, if Congress wanted to pass the same exact vaccine mandate tomorrow, then the result in this case would probably be very different. So if Congress were to do it, that's or if Congress were to pass a law that gave OSHA clear and uh, concise uh, directions in doing this, then they could. But as of now, they just have not been uh, given that power. Also, this means that private businesses can still mandate vaccines if they want to. So if you work for a private business and they decide that all employees must be vaccinated for COVID-19 or they or face termination, then that business can indeed do that and has that right. This ruling does nothing to that effect. And then finally, this ruling has absolutely nothing to do with states. So if a state, so I live in Georgia, if Georgia wanted to uh, say that all people, workers in the state of Georgia wanted to needs to be vaccinated, then the state uh, could theoretically do that. This ruling does nothing to change that. Also, just to quickly point out, these two vaccine mandate rulings were actually to address whether they would be basically immediately applied or whether they would uh, be uh, not allowed to apply as they make their way through the system. So, 
they were both uh, stayed or they were blocked from being enforced until they were reviewed in emergency fashion by the Supreme Court. And so, in other words, both of these cases could very well end up back at the Supreme Court because this time they were just basically determining the likelihood that they would win, not whether they would actually win. I know that's a little confusing, but we can. these cases could very well find their way back to the Supreme Court in a year or so. The second vaccine mandate came from the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which administers the Medicare and Medicaid programs through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. CMS announced that in order to receive Medicare and Medicaid funding, participating facilities must ensure that their staff were vaccinated against COVID-19. So in other words, if you are a healthcare facility and you participate or you take part in Medicare or Medicaid at all, then your staff must be vaccinated against COVID-19 unless they are exempt for medical or religious reasons. So and, and the court basically ruled that the vaccine mandate fell within the legislative authority of CMS. This ruling means that roughly 10 million healthcare workers will be required to get vaccinated unless they are exempt for medical or religious reasons. Generally speaking, I think these are good rulings. I particularly like the first one because, especially for conservatives, it does a it limits the amount of legislative power that the administrative state has. So OSHA is an administrative agency under the executive branch. They are meant to ex- uh, execute the laws, not make the laws. And so, any time that the Supreme Court wants to make sure that it is Congress legislating, not OSHA, that can just come up with laws whenever they want then I think it's a win because these uh, administrative agencies are filled with unelected bureaucrats who can make a law and then not be held accountable. And so at the very least, the Supreme Court is forcing Congress to make this decision and then be held accountable for this decision, which is how our system was set up to work. And so I particularly like that that idea in the first one. And the second one, I don't have strong feelings for. I think it is at least more reasonable and at least a vaccine mandate for those in healthcare or is tangentially more related than the first one. There are some, uh, the, the, uh, Three most conservative justices disagreed with it and dissented in the ruling, so I haven't uh, gotten any time to really think about it. But generally speaking, as of now, I just don't have that many strong opinions to, uh, to it, especially when the first one was ruled as decisively as it was. In other news, according to the Labor Department on Wednesday, the consumer price index rose 7% in December compared to December of last year. The Consumer Price Index is what is usually used to determine inflation, and this was a particularly important report because this was the fastest that inflation had increased since 1982. But not only that, but it's also a continuation of a trend of recent months of inflation rearing its head. Now, inflation is caused by all sorts of different economic factors, and economists uh, are di- disagree on how much longer inflation will go or how uh, what next year will look like. But uh, generally speaking, everyone tends to agree that this inflation is called, caused by COVID, in particular because COVID I- impacts the productivity of 
uh, businesses and then uh, impacts supply chains. So when someone gets COVID and they're out and they're quarantining for five days, that means that they are not working and they're not producing anything of substance. And so the, the one company produces a good and that good is then going to be used in another company's good that is going to be produced and in, in, in put into another company's good and the entire process continues and so when when workers are out across the board this has trickle down effects throughout the economy and so you have these supply chain issues that are impacting a company's ability to provide any of these uh, goods that people want to buy which, uh, or at least limits the number of goods that people are wanting to buy, which means that demand is still high while supply is low, or at least lower than it needs to be, which causes prices to increase. So as long as COVID is causing these quarantinings and these uh, supply chain issues, I don't see uh, inflation going anywhere, uh, anywhere soon. On the other side of this, you also have a tight labor market meaning that people uh, and companies are struggling to hire workers. So with this, that means that companies are not able to hire the workers they need to produce the goods that they need, again, impacting supply. And then as they cannot find workers, they have to raise salaries in order to and raise pay in order to incentivize people to work for them. Well, they're not going to just sit back and let this increase in cost go because they have people to pay and margins to keep. And so they increase prices to make up for it. And so as long as these two factors are still around, I don't really see what the government or the Fed can do about inflation. Because as long as you have labor issues and you have supply chain issues, they can't really fix those things other than not spending a or passing a huge spending bill and getting out of the market's way to ensure that the market can let it can can figure it out on its own the government does not need to in, in, intervene in the economy and try to make things better because ultimately the government isn't able to do that and it'll only, only make things worse. And so the government needs to just let the markets figure this out. And then as the government does that, we can hope and pray that COVID goes away because without COVID going away and without these two aspects being addressed, I don't see inflation going anywhere anytime soon, no matter how much people want and ask the government to do something about it. Now on to some quick hits. On Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that the SEC, Securities and Exchanges Committee, Wall Street's main regulator, was moving to implement new transparency requirements for big private companies. These new requirements would require some private companies to routinely disclose information about their finances and operations. So private companies, these large ones that they're concerned about for right now, these private companies are going to possibly have to come up with some quarterly reports as if they were a public company. Now, the SEC is doing this because they're concerned that these private companies, these massive private companies, are getting uh, 
money and and getting raising capital on private markets without having to disclose the same information that they would if they were public, and it's preventing uh, companies from going pro- uh, public. If they can still get the funding without going public, why would you go public? Because you don't have to disclose as much information. And so I, I don't understand why the government feels like it has to intervene here. This is private businesses going to private investors and asking those investors to give them money. And so if a, an investor gives a company money based on no knowledge whatsoever, then that is on the investor. They don't have to do that. If I go to an investor and I say, hey, I have this business, and this business is a business that makes money, and I don't tell them anything else, and that investor decides to give me everything they have, and I go and take their money and spend it on the lottery, then that investor deserves to lose it all because they shouldn't have given me that money. They should know better. And so this whole idea of the government intervening in order to make sure that people are making good investments is not the government's job, and it should not be the SEC's job. And part of the reason why I think this is such a big deal is because it right now is focused on these big unicorn companies that are worth over a billion dollars. However, once you cross the threshold and you say that all private businesses have to do, or or once you say that any private business has to do this, then what's to stop from all private businesses from having to do this? Who's to stop the SEC from saying it was a billion dollars? If your company was worth a billion dollars, then then you have to disclose this information. But now it's 500 million. What would stop them from doing that? And the issue with that is, is as these private companies become smaller and smaller, that means that they don't have capital just to spend on whatever. They're going to have to pay people to make these reports. And so that means that these smaller private companies are going to spend precious capital that they don't have in excess in early stages of growth and invest that in not back into the business to create more jobs, but rather to basically meet these sorts of regulation. And so this this whole SEC, and I, I, this is in its early stages, these proposals are, but I think they should just be res, uh, resoundly, resoundingly rejected right now because even though they're in their uh, early stages, they shouldn't go beyond that. These are ideas that would damage uh, economic growth, and the government just has no role in this whole ordeal. In a similar vein, on Monday, this uh, the Biden administration announced that it will require insurance companies and group health plans to cover the cost of the over-the-counter at-home COVID tests. So people with private cover- health coverage can get them now for free starting January 15th. So again, this is a private company, private insurance companies, saying that they do not want to pay for and insure COVID-19 tests. So they don't want to do that because for whatever reason. And, the, and the, the Biden administration and the government is intervening and saying, no, you have to. You have to spend your money on covering these tests. And it's an absurd amount of tests. It is eight tests per person a month. Who is testing eight times a month with at-home COVID tests? Not to mention that COVID at-home tests are very difficult to find right now. But I just do not understand how or why the government has an interest in forcing these private companies to spend their money to cover these tests. I understand the motivation behind it. I understand that they want these uh, tests to be as cheap as possible for people to buy. But that then if they're going to do that, then the government should just intervene and give these out for free. They should not make private companies spend their money to cover these tests when these private companies don't want to. And it's not just that the private companies don't want to. 
these private insurance companies will be spending more money to cover these tests, and then will just have to compensate for that loss of money elsewhere. In other words, that they will up premiums for everyone in the insurance company that they cover because now they're having to spend more money. So in the short and immediate term, this may seem like a win for the uh, individuals. They can go and get a COVID test for free, but when their premiums go up because the insurance company doesn't want to lose more money than they have to, then they're going to realize that this really wasn't saving them any money in the long run. In international news, Russia was at the center of it all. So over the course of the last few weeks, Russia has been building up its military presence on Ukraine's border. And right now, they have more than 100,000 troops on their border with Ukraine. And so the U.S. intelligence officials have been warning that this isn't a normal buildup, that in fact this seems to be a lead-up to a possible invasion. And the U.S. and other Western countries are concerned that Vladimir Putin intends to invade Ukraine. And he, they're concerned not only because of the buildup, but also because Putin has made his intentions relatively clear. He believes that Ukraine belongs to Russia, that the Ukraine people are really Russian. And so in order to kind of address this situation, the U.S. and NATO have both been meeting with Russia this week. The U.S. at the beginning of the week and NATO towards the middle of the week and the end of the week. And in both of these meetings, Russia and the U.S. and NATO have not seen eye to eye at all. They have not come to any sort of agreements, and that is largely because the concessions in which Russia are asking for are non-starters for the U.S. and NATO. Russia, in, in their, on their side, wants NATO to give a binding guarantee that Ukraine and Georgia will not become part of NATO. This is a non-starter for NATO because they do not want to end their open-door policy, which says that membership— to NATO is open to any European nation that is, quote, in a position to further the principles and security of the North Atlantic area. This is in the NATO uh, charter or founding document, whatever it is. And so this open door policy, they, they cannot and they do not want to just get rid of. And if it, they were to say that Ukraine and Georgia cannot be a part of NATO, then they would essentially be getting rid of this open-door policy. So Russia asking this is a non-starter. And Russia also wants NATO to scale back military operations in former Soviet territories like Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary, among others. Again, this is a non-starter. NATO is meant to serve as defense. They're not going to weaken their defense because Russia wants them to. That's not how this works. So as Russia has has tried to get NATO and the U.S. to make these concessions, NATO and the United States have refused, and they should refuse. Now, it's not just that meetings have gone poorly, but as of Friday, U.S. intelligence believed that Russia had sent operatives into Ukraine to create a pretext for invasion. So they have sent people into Ukraine to cause some sort of ruckus or some sort of scene or some sort of event that would give Russia a reason or an excuse to invade Ukraine. So this is a huge step in this process. Now, in the event of an invasion, the U.S. basically has three options here. The first is unlikely, and that is to defend Ukraine by sending its own troops. So the United States could send in American troops and fight tooth and nail to maintain uh, Ukraine. That is highly unlikely, especially with a president who just withdrew from Afghanistan and who has uh, 
continually seemed incredibly dovish when it comes to international conflict. The second thing that the United States can do is just basically leave Ukraine to its own devices and say, good luck, hopefully we see you on the other side. This is also unlikely because Ukraine falling to Russia is not in the interest of NATO, and the United States is going to want to defend NATO's interest. So this is also highly unlikely, which means the third option is probably what's going to happen, but the third option can look like all sorts of different things. So the third option is essentially they help out Ukraine and then put sanctions on Russia. They can help out Ukraine by sending them all sorts of military equipment or guns or provide them with uh, weaponry and equipment and supply them to the tooth and nail so that they can put up a fight against Russia while also, or... Uh, not, but most likely setting up, uh, putting uh, economic sanctions on Russia. These can look anything from like refusing to allow them to participate financially in uh, the world economy to uh, something as extreme as a straight embargo. Now, the issue with uh, economic sanctions, and again, this could be all over the map. They could put these economic sanctions on. They could only supply. They could only put economic san- sanctions and not supply. They could, and, and and the extremes to which they do, they go to these, uh, they put in place these policies also matter as well. But the issue with economic sanctions is that the United States, unlike Russia, actually cares about the Russian people. In fact, the United States cares about the Russian people more than the Russians do. And so the issue is that economic sanctions tend to hurt the people of Russia. So the United States does not want to put economic sanctions that will cripple the Russian economy so bad that the people of Russia suffer because their government sucks. And so the United States is going to keep that in mind as they uh, put in place uh, these sanctions. Now, as all of this is happening, and in the midst of all this, an uprising broke out in the Central Asia country of Kazakhstan. Now, it may seem like it doesn't seem that important because uh, when was the last time anyone talked about Kazakhstan? But that is important because this seems random, but the but Russian troops were called in to provide security for the Kazakh uh, government. The, uh, the uprising occurred because they lifted price controls on some energy Uh, some gas, and the prices shot up, and as they shot up, people started to be unhappy. Now, there's some debate whether these these revolts were kind of more peaceful, and they just wanted the government to listen to them, or whether they were, uh, or grew into something a little bit more planned and serious, where they were trying to overthrow the government. But nonetheless, the Kazakh government called in Russia to help them secure their position. So, this is a, a, this was a brief distraction to Ukraine, because Russia was having to focus on putting down the rebellion in, uh, in in Kazakhstan. The reason why that Kazakhstan had to do this is because Kazakhstan is reliant on Russia to protect them. They are reliant on the Russian defense. At the same time, they're incredibly reliant economically on China. And so China's in this awkward position where they are the economic driver of Kazakhstan, but not the defense or security driver of Kazakhstan. And so in Kazakhstan, Russia and China are at this weird crossroads where they are competing for influence in Kazakhstan. And this is important because uh, while it doesn't seem like much now, when you have two superpowers like Russia and China who are trying to become as powerful as possible and trying to essentially take over the world, then they will butt heads at some point. And it is 
increasingly likely that it will occur with something like Kazakhstan, where China is economically the driver, but Russia is the security or defense of the country. So we'll see that if, as China increases their economic power over Kazakhstan, whether they are able to also increase their their uh, security over Kazakhstan. So this is just this weird um, crossroads that these two countries face that right now doesn't seem like much, but I do think uh, it'll be interesting to see if something like Kazakhstan or in that region creates some sort of uh, uh, spark that... Uh, will eventually put these two countries at odds. And finally, time for a breakdown of the breakdown. This is where I'm going to talk about the Burnett Breakdown newsletter that I write uh, and kind of give more elaboration or explanation for what I was talking about for either those who have further questions or those who didn't get the chance to read it. So this one I talked about all about bravery. Um, it, is, it, is, it is titled Bravery, and I really centered this one around this Thucydides, quote, this Thucydides quotation that I came across a few months ago, and it reads, But the man who can most truly be accounted brave is he who best knows the meaning of what is sweet in life and of what is terrible, and that goes out undeterred to meet what is to come. When I first read this quotation, I was struck by its insightfulness. I think that this quotation is one of my favorite I've ever read. Because it really gets at the heart of uh, a, an essence or a characteristic of bravery that is not often talked about. And that is that bravery, it's not that bravery is not having fear. It's that bravery is actually conquering your fear. However, okay, in order to conquer fear, you have to have knowledge that, uh, that makes you fearful, fearful. And so the two things that uh, Thucydides talks about that increases our uh, knowledge that allows us to be brave is is knowing what is sweet, knowing the good things in life. The, the more we know what is good and have experienced good things, the less we want those good things to go by the wayside. The more we want them and the, and the more afraid we are to lose them. And so as we n- discover what is sweet in life, we are going to be uh, more unwilling to let those things go, and vice. And in, in in another way, we also have to know what is terrible, because someone who has only lived a miserable life goes on their life and can do very quote unquote brave things, but only because they only know pain and suffering. And as long as they only know pain and suffering, what is more pain and suffering to them? So in other words, there's they don't really know anything else, and so it, it's second nature, and there's no kind of decision to be brave in that. So as we grow in our knowledge about what is sweet and what is terrible in life, then we are faced with the decision of what now, right? Then we're faced with the decision to actually confront those, to confront life, knowing that there are sweet things that we will have to forego and that there are terrible things that we will have to experience. And so I use the the uh, kind of this first uh, initial story about this little boy who stands up to a bank robber, but we find out that it's because he only thinks that the bank robber has a Nerf gun and not a real gun, to say, like, that is what we are like when we don't have these two kinds of knowledge. If we don't believe or we don't know what is sweet and we don't know what is terrible. And the reason why this matters so much is because we are really in a a moment that there's a, a sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness that has just uh, captivated and captured 
young people. If you look at anxiety rates and depression rates and attempted suicides and successful suicides, Gen Z, or the youngest generation, are the their, their rates are so much higher than every other generation. And there's a multitude of reasons for it, and bravery is not the only one, but, but I think that bravery can go a long ways to addressing these problems. Okay, bravery gives us a sense of purpose. We like that uh, we, and I say this at the end of the the piece, but we like movies and superhero movies and movies that have heroes that conquer things because we want to be like them. We want to be like those people who who are faced with something that seems unconquerable, something that seems overwhelming, something that seems like they cannot conquer it, and yet they face that, they face their fear, and they face the potential of failure, and they face it head on, and then they conquer it, right? Because we want to be that person. We want to be that person that does that. And so when we watch those subconsciously or consciously, we identify or we want to identify with that person. And so we get a sense of, 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 um, of real meaning from that. And so if we want to address the meaninglessness and purposelessness that so many young people face, one of the ways of doing that is bravery. And I think this is why someone like Jordan Peterson is as popular as he is, because really, if you listen to what Jordan Peterson talks about, this is a main theme of his. It's, it's, yes, life is terrible and life sucks sometimes, but don't make it suck as much as as it can. Make it better. Okay, you don't have to just make things worse. Yes, life is hard, but you can make it better and you can make the lives around of people around you better by not being as bad as you can be, but actually trying to be the hero. And so I, I, I listen to stuff like that and I see the popularity of, of someone like him and I just think that it can, that, th- that there's an audience for that kind of message, but we just don't talk about bravery much at all. It's kind of an antiquated term that we don't like to really refer to. And with that, that is the end of the Burnett Breakdown Podcast Edition, first ever. So if you have any suggestions or feedback, please let me know, and I hope to see you next week when we break down the news again.